Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Today, we got a Q&A, and we uh, want to shout out a few things first and foremost. Um, first, go check out the blog because uh, as of this morning, as I'm recording this, it's like completely updated. Um, by the time you hear this, probably going to tweak a couple more things, um, like the featured blogs on the page. Are you looking at it right now? Nope. Oh. Um, I went to go pull an article to link to an article I'm writing right now, and I was like, whoa, what the fuck? It's totally different um, because the, the web team has been shifting things uh, yeah. and stuff, but it's it's dope. I mean, it's just being able to find, like, it actually made me look at it and go, wow, I got to delete some old articles because it pulled up some articles that I wrote in, like, 2012. Damn. Yeah, I'm like, fuck, dude. Which was, ones were those? I was like 19. Yeah. Or, yeah, because I graduated until 10 at 17 years old. Yeah, so I was literally like 19, 20 years old. Um, I mean, just weird. I, I did a uh, a series for uh, my bodybuilding show. So some of them are like literal, like blog Day entries. Blogs. Yeah, because back then it was like blogging was like how you updated people on what you're doing. It yeah. wasn't, there wasn't Instagram on your story. Yeah. Um, so it was like this week's prep, you know, episode two, three, it was Kind of funny to look back at now. Um, but that's all this shit started, so I guess it's cool. But anyway, the the blog navigation is just dope, and we're, like, tweaking some things on the site to just make the navigation better and better and just... It's crazy yeah. how much more writing goes into blogging opposed to, like, if you're on your story. Like, you can it's say insane. something way faster than yeah. you can type it. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I think the nice thing, and that's why I think I value it so much from, like, a, a content information perspective... Obviously, there's no way I'm writing, like, my weekly blog today. Yep. You know, like, this is what I did this week in my training. Like, it's just too much. And that's why people started vlogging mm-hmm. because it's a video version, way easier to do. Not way easier to edit necessarily. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I would much rather do that kind of thing on Instagram. But um, articles, to me, are just so much more valuable. And, uh, yeah, so we were tweaking that. The blog is just being updated. Um I'm just trying to make it honestly like going back to like one of my original goals in the industry of making it the like this is obviously outlandish but making it the most popular fitness blog there is like I always had that goal of like I want to be one of the top five like best blogs there are on fitness um, and the way the navigation is starting to look and some of the new articles I've been writing I'm like damn this is actually we're bringing it yeah it's like just there's so much like content in there it's like a vault, you know, a library of so much good material and guides and manuals, essentially. I mean, there's just like a bunch of, I mean, really, it's like a bunch of free, you don't even have to put your email in to download it, like a bunch of free ebooks. Yeah. Literally, like short ebooks on topics. I mean, there's the, we have a guide on carbs, a guide on protein, a guide on fats. We have a guide on cardio, hit lists, hit versus lists, fasting. Like, I mean, there's just so much, all the topics you can think of. Um, right now I'm writing a blog on, um, I almost finished it. Um, but my time block ran out, so I stopped, but this morning I was writing it. It's, uh, you gotta say what it is, um, how to lean bulk basically. But I think we're titling it like basically determining like, should you even lean bulk? Like what is a lean bulk? I mean, it, it has everything. It's hard to title it right now. Cause it's like lean bulking is the process of like, you know, building muscle, but not gaining fat. So it's like, what's the difference between that and recomp? Well, recomp is losing fat and building muscle simultaneously. So it's like differentiating those. Well, what's the difference between lean bulking and dirty bulking? And then going down the path of dirty bulking, why that's not good. And then how do you actually lean bulk? 
What do you need for your calories, your protein, your macros, your nutrient timing, supplements, training, cardio? Should you do cardio? Commonly asked questions. Like it's super in depth. Um, so I, there's no way I finished it, but that'll be a really, really good one too. Dope. So, yeah, we just, I mean, there's a big list of articles. So go check out the blog. We're pumping out a lot of really good stuff there. Um, and real quick, because I always wait to the end of this. So before we get in the q and I'm going to shout this out right now. But coaching, we, uh, there's a reason why we can record so many podcasts. There's a reason why we have millions of downloads. And there's a reason why we put out so many articles. It's because we know our shit and we work with a lot of people. So we have a lot of experience. If you need help with your physique, your health, your performance, whatever it may be, uh, we are your go-to source for coaching. So taylorcoachingmethod.com slash online dash coaching. Sign up there. You can get a free strategy call to make sure we're a good fit for you. You're a good fit for us. And we can chat about what coaching with us looks like if you want individualized attention and help and guidance. Amen. With that being said, let's answer some questions. Let's get on to it. Um, we are going to start off today. Let's see here. where The first question is going to come from Stephanie. It says, hey, Cody, I love the podcast, guys. I have a question about maintaining muscle. I recently found out that I'm pregnant, so I my main focus will be growing my baby over the next nine months and maintaining the muscle that I already have. I have been cleared by my doctor to still work out, but I don't want to overstress my body. I've been going to the gym about four times a week and doing a two upper, two lower split, about 15 to 18 sets per muscle group per week. How much volume should I be doing if my main focus is to just maintain the muscle I currently have? Good question. And uh, congrats, first and foremost, recently being pregnant. Um, Very, very exciting. So maintaining muscle is two things. One way easier than most people realize or worry about. Um, Number two, requires far less volume than people realize or think about. Um, But it depends on a few factors. So uh, number one, like I said, like I think that, I don't know what it is, but you know what's funny is like, I guess people do worry about this, but my thought is a lot of times we get questions about like, hey, I'm going on vacation and I need to figure out what to do. It's very rare that people are like, I'm going on vacation, I don't want to get fat. Like, how do I like come back for that or anything? It's always like, what do I need to do for training to maintain what I have? And it's actually the opposite. It's like, hey, you should probably focus on not binging and overeating, getting fat versus maintaining muscle because yeah. on a week vacation, nothing's going to happen. Her case is obviously longer than a week. But nonetheless, if it's a short period of time, you really don't need to do shit. There was that recent study that we talked to Bill Campbell uh, about on our podcast, uh, and then Brad Schoenfeld was on the podcast and he talked a little bit about a similar topic, but it's like taking those breaks in your training period. And so they actually saw that the people who took those uh, breaks every three weeks, I think he said it was, or something like that, it was like a week long deload, but it was just completely off training. They didn't lose any muscle. And they actually said, if we extend the graphs to be longer than an eight week study or a nine week study, whatever it was, they would have actually started building more muscle because that recovery allows that um, kind of super compensation effect. With that being said, if it's a short period of time, if you're going on vacation, you're doing anything like that, I would probably just plan not to do it. Like, for example, I, I told you about like uh, that that place I want to book so I can like just isolate myself and finish the Taylor Trainer at the end of next month and just like knock it out. I'm not going to train at all when I'm there. I'm going to literally go on hikes. Assuming for a week? They, yeah. I mean, I'm not going for a full week. Oh. But I'm probably, I mean, like I'm going to crank out a bunch of work before, but I'll probably use that as a period of time to not train. So totally. if I'm gone half a week, let's say... 
I would probably skip training for a few days and the weekend. It ends up being about five days, but just take the whole time off, yeah. fully recover, move, go on hikes, get in the canoe, whatever, you know what I mean? Just, just chill. That's probably going to be more productive than me trying to figure out ways to train. And I start, I'm smiling right now because I was going to say and hurting yourself because I fucking snapped myself in the face with a band when I did that at Ocean Shores, remember? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was trying to figure out a way to train with whatever minimal equipment instead of taking a D-load, which I probably should have, and I wrapped a band around something and I pulled it to see how tight it was and it fucking snapped back and hit me in the face. My eye was bloodshot, swollen, bruised for the whole Father's Day weekend. So... God telling me, dude, just chill out, <laughs> take a deload. But point being is like, you actually probably will, you know, you take a step back, quote unquote, to recover, and then you'll take five steps forward. In a longer period of time like this, like where she's like, hey, for an extended period of time, I'm not looking to build muscle. I'm just looking to maintain muscle. Um, I would suggest reducing volume by 50%. Now you don't have to, but I would say anything less than 50%, you might lose some of your gains. Um, you definitely will lose your gains uh, from a neurological perspective. And that is less because you don't have the same strength potential, but because you, you kind of lose the the quote unquote memory of that strength. So again, kind of like we were talking about the other day on the podcast about the golf ball that I threw. Yeah. Like I still have the memory of being able to throw something really far, but I haven't thrown in a long time. So I'm not good at it right now. But if I just start doing it again for a little bit, I'll pick right back up to where I was. Totally. Um, so in that case, you will lose strength for sure. Um, after the pregnancy, you will lose strength for some other physiological reasons, but not that much. And they come back quick. So for example, I have a client right now who, uh, her daughter or her son is pretty, very young still. Um, I don't know the age off the top of my head, but she came to me post-pregnancy. Her strength gains came back super quick. And now she just, on her last check-in, she said she thinks she's actually stronger than she's ever been. So like, it just goes to show you within that first year post-pregnancy, you can actually gain it all back and then some and I don't even think her son's a year old yet like not actually I know he's not um so it'll come back quick but muscle tissue itself that's where it's like you can more easily maintain that at that 50 percent mark um there was a research study that showed one eighth of your training so I don't know what percentage that is but like 13 percent or something like that um one eighth of your volume required to grow will maintain so if it takes me 10 sets, or to make this really easy, if it takes me eight sets per week to grow, it takes me one set to maintain, right? Most people need there more than go. eight sets per week yeah. per muscle group to grow, but that's just easy for my math skills. Um, but even like in a more realistic, so 16 sets per muscle group per week is pretty common. That's, you know, in between that 10 to 20 on the higher end. Um, sets per muscle group per week is common. That would mean two sets per week per muscle group would literally maintain your muscle mass. Two sets per week per muscle group is nothing, right? So you could go from training five, six days a week to training two or three days a week and probably do just fine. Now, the thing I will say is you're going to have muscle groups that are lagging that might need a little more attention. You're going to have muscle groups that don't need as much attention. You're going to have muscle groups that um, you just enjoy training more. Um, there's going to be muscle groups that are more important for you to not just maintain but actually develop because of your pregnancy. Um, for example, around your hips um, in certain exercises – not because of the muscles necessarily, but because of the strength pattern, the movement patterns that are good to develop, but they're going to isolate certain muscle groups versus others. So it's not going to be perfectly even across the board in your case, but um, if you cut your volume in half, you will maintain all your muscle just fine. The thing I would advise is as you get close to your pregnancy is to change up the way you're training because you don't want to be doing certain exercises that put you in a vulnerable position. Um, 
as you become pregnant and you don't want to do it after the pregnancy, obviously either. So for example, I wouldn't advise you doing super heavy deadlifts on the floor. I wouldn't advise you doing pull downs or chin-ups, um, planks or ab exercises that are isolating the abs. Um, you can train your core post pregnancy, but if you're doing things that put too much tension, it can be an issue. If you stretch the abdominal wall too much by going overhead with heavy load or hanging from a chin-up bar completely, um, depending on the person, cause some women have like ab separation during pregnancy, you can tear it further. Um, it's, there's just, I mean, your pelvic floor, uh, needs to be strengthened slowly. So heavy deadlifts, heavy hip thrusts, heavy squats, like you just don't want to be doing too much bracing. Um, isolation work might be a smarter way to go from like isolation to accessory to compounds, like slowly progress that post-pregnancy and then going into the pregnancy, the same thing, but you're starting from compounds, going to accessory, then going to isolation exercises, um, and implementing more cardio towards the end. Um, cardiovascular training is really, really smart. If you can do stuff that also, um, minimizes the eccentric phase, you'll be able to maximize the concentric phase and uh, build muscle through lactate production. So assault bikes, sled poles, and sled pushes. Those are great during pregnancy because you can still build muscle with those, but they also train the cardiovascular system. Um, like, do, do you remember uh, my clients, Robert and Candice, in-person clients way back? Married couple. They're from New York originally. He had yeah. a thick accent, mm. New Yorker style accent. And he was in the Marine Corps. Um, and, uh, and she was pregnant. <laughs> okay. So they were even with us at the old Vigor before we moved. Yeah. But um, I trained both of them, got them in great shape, and then she got pregnant, and I trained her through her pregnancy. And then she had the kid, and then I trained her after her pregnancy. So through the whole process. And that wasn't the first client I did it with, but she's a great example because her body bounced right back, and her pregnancy was quick, easy. I mean, don't, don't, <laughs> don't throw shade at me, women. Like, I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> but, like, relatively speaking, yeah. she had an easier birth. Yeah, exactly. Um, she had a smoother birth. She had an easier, less painful, didn't need as much attention, didn't have to stay at the hospital as long. Like all the things that women and men want to happen when they go through that happen for her. And it's because she was training the right way. She was developing her cardiovascular system and those things pass on too. Like, I mean, that's how genes and healthy DNA gets passed on. Like the baby's going to be healthier at birth as well and have less likelihood of issues and um, illnesses or respiratory issues or anything like that, which obviously you want. So, um, yeah, I would uh, I would be less focused on volume because you really don't need much. Half your volume will do more than enough, and then focus more on changing and progressing and regressing your exercises as the pregnancy goes on. That's good. So yeah. All right, we uh, we'll go on to the next one. We got one from anonymous. It says, "How long do clients typically stay with coaches?" I've been working with my coach for about six months now. I've learned a lot and made a lot of progress. I'm not sure how I would do it on my own. But I also feel kind of embarrassed that I still, quote unquote, need them. Well, first I'll say this. I've been in this industry for 12 years now. And which sounds fucking crazy, 12 years. And I've always had a coach. Yeah, I don't write the second. <clears throat> it's only a matter of time before I get another one for something. You know, I, I mean, I've had coaches. I've had multiple coaches for well over a year especially like life business coaches I've had for multiple years. Um, I've had some personal coaches for fitness and training and nutrition, stuff like that for a year. Um, but some people, some of our coaches have had people for more than a year. Oh yeah. So. I have some clients that I like literally trained in person years ago and then they came back and I've been with them for a couple of years. Yeah. And when I was at the gym with them, they were with me for five years, you know, and I have clients right now that have been just with me for one year, two year, three years. Like, um, so 
there's no timeline you can put on it, you know, because we also have clients that go through six months and it's like, get you from point A to point B, you're good. Yeah. You know, and point A to point B might be four months, then we have a two month reverse. You feel good, go. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with staying with a coach. Yeah. Like, um, the only like justification I can give somebody for not staying with a coach is if it's causing a financial stress in your family. But if you can financially afford it, or you can remove other things in your life that matter far less to you so that you can afford it, which I think is, is like obviously valuable. I mean, there's a lot of shit that we waste money on. Um, and there's been plenty of times where I'm like, I need to cut back on this so that I can afford something that's actually more valuable and important for me. Totally. Um, then do it. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's a, I mean, there was a, there was a study that showed um, a 65 to 90% increase in results. And those are literal numbers. Um, and I know this because I wrote a post about it, so I haven't posted it, um, that uh, it improved accountability, or accountability improved results by 65 to 90%. And their accountability was basically just a, a, like, they had a plan, and then it had a monthly meeting. I don't know if it was in person or virtual, I can't remember. Um, but once a month, they talked to a coach about their plan and about their progress. And they had at least 65% increase across the board up to a 90% increase in results compared to the group who just had a plan and no accountability. So like that alone shows you that like, if I, do, if I hire a coach and I have my plan for anything in life really, but if I have a plan and I just pay somebody to just literally say, Hey there, you fall on the plan. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Thumbs up just for that. Once a month, according to this study, but we obviously do it way more than that. And we do way more than say, hey, hi there, thumbs up. Like, that's going to improve your success rate by 65 to 90%. Now, if you are unsure about sustaining your result, then that's worth it. Because if you're like, I don't know if I could sustain this result that's by myself. What I think she's saying. Yeah, 100%. If I can't sustain the result by myself, why would you not invest to make sure that you can keep it, you know? And then the other side of it is if you just enjoy coaching, because I've been in coaching where I'm like, you know what, I, I live this lifestyle. I'll be fine without, but I genuinely enjoy talking to you every week. I genuinely enjoy your feedback on what I'm doing because I respect you and I value your opinion on training and nutrition. And that's coming from somebody who knows this shit really well. So for somebody who's coaching with us, it might be because you don't know this stuff very well and you genuinely value learning more about it, Right. You're going to get better results and you're going to learn more Then obviously it's worth it. Um, so, I mean, just for the accountability alone. It depends on how much you value the, well, she said she's already made progress. So how much you value those, that progress you've already made. Yeah. hundred percent. If you want to keep onto that, then I would say you keep going, you know? Um, I, and honestly, like I did, six months is not really that crazy to me. If you were like a, a year and a half in, I'd be like, you know what? You might be at that point where you're ready to go on your own. Like that's fine, you know, or a year or whatever, but Six months is really not that crazy, you know? Very normal. Yeah, super normal. Um, most of our clients stay for longer than that. And there's nothing, again, there's nothing wrong with hiring a coach and staying for less than that. But the success is just so, like, to, like again, like, I would pay, I do, because even for my cut, like, you don't need to tell me what I need to do to get, get shredded. I know yeah. what to do. I just know for a fact that if I pay somebody and they tell it to me, yeah. And I have to send them a picture of me flexing every week. I'm guaranteed to do way better. It's proven by results. It's proven by my success. I've tried to do it by myself. I've done it with coaches. You're just way more likely. And so this is the thing that I always say too is like people, and this is where people make mistakes. They, they go to jump into coaching. And maybe this is you listening to this. This will be good. It's a good lesson because we've talked to so many people who don't sign up and they call us back in three to six months and then they sign up. 
you attempt to start a plan and instead of investing in coaching, because it's not a payment, it's an investment, you say, yeah, I'm going to save money, I'm going to do this on my own, or I'm going to buy this book that t- tells me how to calculate right. my macros or follow this training program that's cheaper. And then you half-ass it, you don't progress because you're not tracking and keeping accountable, you don't know how to adjust it when the adjustments come up, um, and you waste a month. And then you buy a different program and then you waste another month and then you waste another month. You know what I mean? Like you're just delaying. You're going to end up spending more time, money and energy and effort by just spinning your wheels for months versus just hiring a coach, fast tracking the progress and being able to stop coaching sooner. You know what I mean? Because so even for the people who don't ever get to the part where she's at, where they actually engaged in it and got the result. I personally think you're just wasting your time and money by not doing it. I mean, statistics show. If you pay money, you will be more likely to get results. It's just, it, I mean, that's a, that's a sense of value. You know what I mean? Amen. So it's tangible. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why really cheap coaching doesn't work well either. Um, I mean, usually if it's really cheap coaching, it's cause the coaching sucks. I mean, just to be completely honest, there's companies out there that have very low regulation for their skill requirement, their education level for their coaches. So that's one of the reasons why it's cheap. But the other thing is, is if I pay, if I pay five bucks for something and it, it gets wasted or whatever, I'm like, well, whatever. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, I even think about this, like Blakely's in that stage where everything she sees, she wants. So you're t- telling her no constantly. She, she, like we're walking in the store and she's like, I need this. And I'm like, it's hand sanitizer. You don't fucking need that. It's like everything, you yeah. know? But sometimes there's like, I really, really want this dad. And it's like this, there's these things now they're, um, LOL surprise was like the first thing yep. that did it, but it's just like a ball. And yep. then you open the ball and there's a bunch of little things in it. Right yep. now, everybody's doing those. So she'll see them and there'll be one that's like two bucks. And I'm like, yeah, that's going to be gone in a day or two, but it's two bucks. It's going to make you happy for today. You get that. And then she'll see one. That's the same thing, but just bigger. And it's 20 bucks. No, you don't need that immediately because yeah. I don't value it enough. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to waste 20 bucks on that when I know it's just like the little tiny one, those two bucks, it's going to be gone in two days. Yeah. I was going to eat one of them. The other ones are going <laughs> to, <laughs> he eats everything. Yeah. So like, but that just goes to show you the amount of money you spend dictates the value you put on something. You know what I mean? And that's, they, they've done this study with, uh, with wine. They had, uh, they did this study with wine and wine glasses. Actually really, really cool. And, uh, they, they basically take two bottles of wine and one wine is like the nice expensive wine. They take one wine that is not the nice expensive one. It's like the cheaper lower shelf bottle, right? And so they give them to the participants and everybody has to judge these different wines, right? Of flavor and taste and aroma and all these things. All the expensive wines did way better on every single test. All the wines were exactly the fucking same. They just labeled them differently Mm. as cheap, moderate, expensive. And everybody literally labeled like dictated what ones and they would like cleanse their palate and stuff. So they couldn't tell it was the same wine, everything. And they did this with wine glasses as well. They basically just took cheap wine glasses and they said, this wine is, uh, or this wine glass is a thinner glass. It aerates your wine. It actually has this special shape, does all these things to it, you know, and it makes your wine taste better. And they said that their wine always tastes better than that. All dollar store. They're all dollar. They're literally like, I don't know if it was a dollar store, but it was literally like $1 wine glasses. That is nothing. Um, and they've actually done some other studies on wine glasses, just for people listening, if there's any wine connoisseurs out there. Most of what is said about wine glasses being special is bullshit, for the most part. Um, decanters, probably different. Wine glasses, not so much. But, but point being is, like, people will literally say, this is better, this is, this is going to work better, this is going to taste better, based on how much they spent. Yep. 
So what do you think is going to happen if you, if you buy an ebook versus you spend money every month on coaching? You're going to value it more. I forget about the ebook. 100%. You're not even do shit with it. Yeah. You, you, I, I have bought in certifications and workshops and shit like that that weren't that expensive that I just never got to because it wasn't expensive enough for me to value it. So I think the, the financial investment side of things is so underrated as, a, as a, uh, a form of accountability for people's success. Like it's just. I would agree. You know, it, it's, it's unaccounted for, but um, very, very important. So that alone is worth maintaining your results and your health. I look at that like uh, your, that's your health bill. Totally. You know. Cool. All right. We will go into the next one. I am going to butcher this name, but um, I believe it's Benny, maybe with a, a silent G. Jibini. Jibini. Or G Benny. G Benny. Uh, like T McQueen. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, yeah. Capital G. Yeah. If I am reverse dieting, do I need to add volume in order to maintain my weight? Um, I'm assuming they mean activity or training here, but I mean, yeah, I guess food volume wouldn't be what they mean, except I, I recommend the food volume aspect. Um, just because I think when you reverse diet, if you, if you continue to focus on voluminous foods, you're going to choose whole foods. You're going to choose less processed foods. You're going to have a higher thermic effect, better neat, um, better digestion, and you're not going to have the, the triggered response to, to binge and eat more food. So that's why my mind went to food volume. Um, but do you need to increase your training volume in order to maintain your physique, basically, your, your weight? So you, you, they, had a, they had a previous question, too, that was basically, because um, this one came from Instagram, and the previous one was they reverse dieted. How, should they go fast or slow? And then it was like, do I need to ret- increase my volume? So I'm assuming they accomplished their goal weight, their goal physique. And when they say maintain, they mean maintain that. Right. Um, and I don't know when it airs, probably not for a, a little bit, but I was just on, uh, the muscle for life podcast, with Mike Matthews. And we talked the whole podcast. He just interviewed me on this topic of reverse dieting properly. Really, really good. And I'm excited for that one to release, but, um, you can, you don't have to, you can. So it, it really depends on how your body is. And I don't want to go into like the metabolic phenotype discussion because we, we did a video on that and I think I did a podcast on it, but, um, it gets into the weeds of science, but realistically what this boils down to is, do you have an adaptive metabolism or do you not have an adaptive metabolism? An adaptive metabolism does exactly what it sounds like. It adapts easily and quickly. You have a very efficient body. And actually it's from a survival perspective, it's actually really good because if you reverse diet and you have an adaptive metabolism, you're probably not going to gain a bunch of body fat because it's very adaptive. You're going to move more. You're going to be more active. Your body's going to process faster, like perfect world. Right. But if you drop calories and you try to lose fat, you're going to adapt quickly too. And it's going to put up a struggle. It's going to be hard for you to lose body fat because your body keeps adapting to the new intake so quickly. But if we think of a survival perspective, thousands of years ago, nobody was fat really. I mean, I don't think you could be unless you were really rich. And at that point it was a symbol of status, but you wouldn't want to drop your calories and start losing weight because back then you would lose fat, all the fat you have really quickly and you'd start losing muscle and you'd start being unhealthy because you're trying to survive in the wilderness, right? Talking way, way back, obviously. So adaptive metabolism is probably not a, a bad thing for a reverse diet or from a survival perspective, but it can be annoying during a cut. And those people I typically like to get a little more aggressive during the cut. But for a reverse diet, like, do you need to maintain or increase your volume in order 
to maintain your physique. If you have an adaptive metabolism, probably not um, because you're going to increase your calories and what's going to happen is your step count's probably going to go up slightly. Um, even like, so like my step count was 11,000 during my cut, for example. It's like 14, 15,000 right now. And I haven't changed anything from my routine perspective. Um, in fact, some days I actually don't go on my morning walk way more than you I used still to. get 14? Yeah, I, I, I had to go on my morning walk. But I still do the pacing when I'm on the phone throughout the day. I still go on like a midday like stroll in the parking lot just to get on my feet. Um, and I, I prefer a night walk versus a morning walk just because it's just like how I unwind for the day. So I still do that. But sometimes I'll skip my morning walk and I'm still over 11,000. Whereas during my cut, I had to do the morning walk and the night walk just to hit the 11,000. Interesting. Because I have an adaptive metabolism. When my calories were lowering for the photo shoot, I didn't get up and pace as much. Yeah, I took yeah. my calls seated whether I realized it or not. I didn't walk to go get the mail as much. I wasn't like as on my feet with Blakely when she's playing, right? I was sitting in the lawn chair in the driveway versus now I'm like kind of standing there and pacing back and forth watching her in the street. Like it just changes. Yep. But um, so when you increase your calories, if you do have an adaptive metabolism, it's probably going to happen that way. You're going to naturally step more. You're probably going to stand more. Um, you're not going to realize it. And this is probably happening with me. Um, if we put, this is, this would actually be interesting to do as like a, for a piece of content. If we filmed all these for YouTube to be able to like actually pull my gestures and my movement during a podcast from when I'm like two weeks out from a photo shoot versus two, three months reverse dieting. Yeah. Because I'm probably moving more with my hands. I'm fidgeting more, blinking more, chewing faster, those kind of things. Um, talking more, those things add up, you know. Sleep's going to be better. I'm probably pushing it harder in the gym. So all these little things stack up when you have a really adaptive metabolism because your body's just taking the calories and using them efficiently and effectively. Um, now, do you need to increase your training volume if that's you, though? No, unless you want to build muscle. So obviously, if you're... Yeah, if we're just trying to maintain our physique, we don't really need to increase anything if we have an adaptive metabolism. If we don't have an adaptive metabolism, we definitely are going to want to increase something because we're not naturally going to do those things I just mentioned. So when your metabolism isn't very adaptive, it might be easier to lose weight because, for example, if, if my starting point is semi-active, I train pretty hard, get 10,000 steps a day, I pull my calories down into a deficit, still semi-active, still training pretty hard, still getting 10,000 steps a day. Versus somebody who's adaptive, they pull their calories down and they go from semi-active to not active to not training very hard to sleeping like shit. Like things just happen. So it's hard to lose weight. Um, and then the opposite for the opposite person on the way up. So if you don't have an adaptive metabolism and we're increasing our calories and we want to maintain our weight, now we have to be intentional about like, okay, I'm increasing my calories. I'm going to try to purposely step more because I know my body's not going to naturally do it. So I'm going to add a thousand steps today. I'm going to intentionally add a couple sets in my training sessions. I'm going to intentionally try to like add some finishers. Like if you want to really stay lean during a reverse, especially if you're going beyond or like really close to your new hypothetical maintenance intake, because it will be lower than it was before the diet started, obviously, then you're probably going to have to program some of those things in. Um, and the only other reason we would program in more volume from a training perspective is if I'm reverse dieting, whether I have an adaptive metabolism or not, if I want to build muscle, I'm going to have to do that regardless. Because if I have an adaptive metabolism, those calories are going towards steps and blinking and fidgeting and stuff like that, not more volume in the gym. Yeah, I'll probably lift heavier because I have more energy. But if I want to build muscle during reverse, I have to intentionally increase volume because volume is the main driver for hypertrophy. And the only way to be able to recover from that volume is to eat more. So as I'm eating more food during reverse, I'm just linearly bringing up my volume a little bit too. But 
there's obviously diminishing returns there. I'm not going to just increase and just keep going. Now I'm in the gym for four hours a day because I got to keep increasing. Like there's a limit, but, um, but yeah, that's where you can push that threshold to how much volume you can handle. I think that, like you said, there's a limit on, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of going more time, you can compensate with volume and intensity, right? Yeah. So that's the other thing too is not being in the gym for four hours, but reps and sets. Yeah. So, well, it depends because if we had a lot of sets, we are spending more time. You know what I mean? Because technically if I go from three sets of everything to four sets, it's just more time. The other side of this too, though, is like, let's say I go from three sets of everything to four sets of everything. Let's say that technically adds 20 minutes a day in the gym, but I have more energy and I don't need as long as rest. So now I'm going from four minutes rest because I was lazy and lethargic in a deficit to two minutes of rest. Totally. Well, I just shaved off that time. So sometimes it evens out. And then once you go beyond that again, then it's like, okay, now we're starting to Got tap it. into those longer hours. Um, and then as far as intensity goes, it's like your, your intensiveness, like your effort is definitely going to go up because you have more energy and you can push it harder. Intensity being like how much weight you lift will go up a little bit with that because if you have more energy and you're pushing harder, you can That's obviously lift was, heavier. That's what I was thinking. But I'd, intensity itself isn't going to increase volume or muscle mass that much. So I don't typically recommend if somebody's in a reverse and they're like, I want to optimize my physique during this reverse, I'm probably not going to say, okay, let's do lower reps and heavier loads. So increase the intensity on everything. I'm probably going to say, hey, keep the loads where they are. Let's just keep bumping up volume because that's going to be more conducive to using those calories for muscle growth. Yeah. Um, you don't need those as much for, for the intensity aspect. For sure. So. Good, good. All right, we will move on to the next one. It's from Jana Marie one two three. It says, "I think I got that." Jana Marie one two three sounds like a nursery are, rhyme. Are GDA supplements worth it? When to use them? Even if so, um, no, they're not. Uh, GDA stands for glucose disposal agent. Um, GDAs were something that was really fucking cool in like 2015. I was really excited about these. Um, so you'll have like a complex and it's got cinnamon extract, um, uh, ALA will be in there, um, chromium, I think ALA, ALA is a glucose disposal agent, um, chromium is Burberry, uh, not Burberry, um, um, definitely not Burberry. Oh my God, I'm blanking. Type in, type in a Burberry supplement and see what pops up because it is something very similar. Bur- Burning. Burning. Berberin. Berberin. Yeah, Berberin. There we go. Burberry. <laughs> um, so the uh, I had a Burberry tie back in the day. I thought it was so fucking cool. Multiple. Yeah. I had a Burberry tie and a Burberry button-up. Oh, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. God. I didn't wear them at the same time, I promise. <laughs> I swear to God, I did Dustin's not. Dustin's party? No, I wore one night I wore the Burberry okay. with a black tie, and then the next day I wore a black shirt with a Burberry Don't tie. Don't believe him. Look at the pictures, man. Yeah. I got a picture of me and Roland sitting on the, yeah, 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 um, yeah. the club. Um, all right. That's another glucose disposal agent. But uh, it's basically a pill full of things that are, quote, unquote, glucose disposal agents. And what a glucose disposal agent is theoretically supposed to do, and there's technically research behind them doing it, and they technically do do this. Um, they are supposed to increase insulin, insulin sensitivity and shuttle nutrients into the muscle cell better. So we basically take these before eating carbohydrates as a way to hope that carbohydrates go into the muscle cell more effectively and efficiently. The problem is, is that there's just not enough research to support them being that effective. Um, 
like you you can technically take them and that would like that mechanism would occur but all of those things just it's like it's like this this tiny tiny thing it's going to do and the fact of the matter is is it's not going to do nearly as much as just being lean or strength training so because you're already lean or because you're strength training it's going to just cancel out that effect Um, now if you are extremely overweight there's actually some legit evidence and support in taking things like this to help regulate blood sugar levels and make you healthier and not have insulin resistance in, in, uh, obesity, but they usually don't give it to obese people or recommend obese people because there's a prescription drug for that. Um, and that one is called, now I'm going to forget because berberin was a, uh, was classified as just as effective as it, um, type in, uh, diabetic, diabetic medication in berberin. What is it? Di- type in diet, diabetic, like pill or medication, and berberin. See what comes up. Diabetes medicine, ageless met- metformin. Met- metformin. Metformin. So metformin is what the metformin is is a prescription level grade. So you have to be prescribed it. That actually does this, and they give it to people, and it fucking works. It really does work. And there's people, the bodybuilders, stuff like that, that will take metformin because it does help um, with fat loss and, and blood glucose regulation, stuff like that. But berberin is a herb that you can get on the shelf um, or from Amazon or whatever, and that actually has been shown to be just as effective as metformin. And first form. And first form. Um, but the uh, but berberin, you got to take like I want to say it's like 500 milligrams. So for example, most and, and like that's like per meal. So I remember taking berberin and taking like 25 to 3,500 milligrams a day. Cause you would take one to 500 to a thousand milligrams with each meal. Um, again, it wasn't really doing much for me because I was already lean and already strength training. And so I was already insulin sensitive and I was already going to absorb all those carbohydrates in the muscle cell really effectively and efficiently. Um, so it, it just is kind of one of those things where if you're already doing the right things that you have to do to do to get results, it's going to kind of cancel out the effectiveness of this. Unless you're an obese individual with who's pre-diabetic or diabetic, then you should be taking metformin or berberin, right? Um, not that I'm giving you medical advice. Yeah. Caution, disclaimer. Uh, but um, most of the time, glucose disposal agents, they got 50 milligrams of berberin in there with chromium, with cinnamon, with this. It's nothing. It's going to do shit for you. So there's usually not enough. Um, and they're just not that effective. They really aren't. There's there's other things you can do to help with glucose uptake that are going to be much more effective and efficient. Um, but it seemed like it was like this. The way it was marketed back in the day was basically like the cheat meal pill. It's like I literally remember buying this shit and going, oh, dope. I'm just going to take this on Saturdays and I can eat whatever the fuck I want. Huh. And I would have these just outlandish cheat meals with pastries and donuts, whatever I wanted. But I was taking this this pill, so I was good. I had a GDA. <laughs> I wasn't going to store as fat. Damn. So stupid. But like, as, you know, before research and you're ignorant in the body space, you're like, this is amazing. This is so cool. Why isn't everybody doing this? Yeah. Because well, it doesn't work. Um, but yeah, so that, uh, it's not really going to be that effective. I wouldn't recommend it to most people. There's just really no... No sound evidence for it. There's also even some evidence that uh, berberin and other glucose disposal agents can actually uh, mess with the AMPK response. And AMPK uh, in your body is going to be, you have AMPK, um, mTOR, muscle protein synthesis, all these different IGF levels, all these different 
hormonal neurological processes, hormonal processes going in your body that are going to contribute to muscle growth and the function of rebuilding muscle tissue. And there's actually some research that shows it messes with that AMPK response from training and from a meal that can actually lower muscle protein synthesis. Um, limited data, but that's because they're not really funding a bunch of data on this because nobody really cares. But to me, it's like, okay, if I take this and it does help me shuttle these carbs into the muscle cell better, but it's also lowering muscle protein synthesis, which is the main driver of muscle growth, what's the point? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and then the last thing I will say is, if you're taking it and you take enough berberine for it to be effective at altering your blood glucose levels, you can actually go hypoglycemic during your training. And that's where you're getting shaky and shit because it rapidly digests those carbs too quick. That's why we want to slow it down sometimes. So it's definitely not something I recommend around your training window. It would be like your anytime meals where you're having a lot of carbs if you're going to do it. But again, the research just doesn't really support it. Totally. So Cool. All right. We got a couple more here. We will go here uh, from... Huff Stickler Home says, I get knee pain during every single leg day. Is there any suggestions you would suggest? Huff Stick. Huff Stickler. Yeah. I just Huff Stick. Sounds funny. Like you're huffing a stick. Um, Blakely saw my cigar outside the other night and she was like, what's this? Because I like put it in the ashtray and just left it there. And she was like, what is that? And I was like, it's a cigar. What do you do with that? I was like, well, uh, I light it on fire and I suck on it. I, like, I don't know what to say to her. She's like, why? I was like, so I can breathe the smoke in? Why? And when you say it, you're like, yeah, that sounds fucking stupid. Why would I? I don't know. Why yeah. would I do that? <laughs> you don't get it. <laughs> like, I was just like, uh, daddy likes doing it. She was like, can I do it when I'm older? I was like, no, probably not. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> Let's go play. Um, so funny. All right. Uh, what did they ask? Uh, knee pain. Knee pain. Uh, on Again, every leg day. Yep. Every single leg day. Every single leg day. Um, okay, so there's like, I'm going to give you a few general recommendations, but the truth is, is like, I would have to literally assess what's going on. Um, but I, I actually, this is a perfect example. Um, shout out to Jake Lures uh, from August Burns Red. I just, uh, we've been friends for a bit now. And um, as you know, actually, we're going to have to catch up on podcasts because I'm going to be flying out to Pennsylvania for half a week. Um, in a few weeks, but, um, I'm doing his training and nutrition as well. And this is one of his issues. He has knee pain. And one of the problems is when he's on stage screaming and leads the lead singer of, of a metal band and you're getting up to the stage and then you're jumping on the, the risers and like the big speakers and standing on and everything. He's like, dude, I constantly have knee pain. And I'm like, obviously like the way, I don't remember exactly his wording was when we were on the phone, but basically like the last thing you want is for you need to go out when you're jumping on a fucking speaker and a riser performing on stage from thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Probably not a good thing. So this is some of the stuff that I'm doing with him because I'm not there yet. I'm going to be able to assess him when I'm actually there because I'm going to be working with his team. But because I can't put my hands on his knee, I'm just asking him questions. When do you get knee pain? How do you get knee pain? I can't do that with this person. But the general stuff that I'm doing with him, um, number one is going to be ankle and hip mobility. So typically when you have joint pain, you want to look above and below. So if I have knee pain, I'm going to look at my ankle and my hip. And the reason for this is it's it's based on what's called the mobility stability continuum and it's something we've talked about on the podcast before but every joint there's a joint by joint stacking up approach essentially to this continuum and every joint alternates from mobile to stable so your ankles are mobile knees are stable hips are mobile your lumbar spine is the lower part of your back that's the next 
joint technically above your hips and that's stable. You're not supposed to bend it too much. Your thoracic spine is in the middle of your spine. It's above the lumbar that is mobile. So again, it just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It gets a little more complex when you get into your shoulders because there's so many different joints and discs between your shoulders and your neck. But the point is, is that it's mobile, stable, mobile, stable. So it's easy when we're looking at things. If you have elbow pain, look at your wrist and your shoulder. If you have hip pain, look at your knee and your low back. So if you, if you, if you don't have stability in your trunk, so your low back and your core, your hips might hurt. Or if you have, if you lack stability in your knees, your hips might hurt. It happens more often. The pain usually resides in stable joints more often than not. And the reason is because if I lack mobility in my ankles or my hips, when I go to do a movement and I don't have that ankle mobility, my knee will compensate and try to make up for that lack of mobility by shifting and moving when it's not supposed to. And that causes uh, shear, force, tear, tension, so on and so forth. So example, I can't say that this is why I tore my meniscus the first time, but for example, on the soccer field, I, the first time I tore my meniscus, out of all people, my brother passed me the ball and I went to pivot and turn before I went out of bounds and I fell and I partially tore my meniscus. Then I went and I was playing club soccer and I completely tore it. But let's say I went to make that step in that pivot and I stepped and my ankle just didn't, didn't have the mobility it needed. And my knee tried to move to allow me to make that turn and it tears because I don't have, it's not supposed to move that much. Um, same reason why ankle braces are fucking stupid. If, if an injured player has an injured ankle and then you put them on an ankle, if you put a fat ankle brace on him, now it has no mobility. Yeah. He's bound. You already fucked up his ankle. Now he's going to fuck up his knee. Like good job. You know, instead rehab, heal, get movement going. They even say like after surgery, after, uh, injury, like, yeah, I'm going to ice it. I'm going to take the pain medication, but then I'm going to move my ankle. Because I want movement, I want blood flow, I want to get that thing moving so that I don't have to wear a brace that restricts my mobility. But point being is if you have knee pain all the time, you might not be on a field, you might not be doing anything ballistic like that, but let's say every time you squat, every time you lunge, every time you run if you're a runner, every time you do anything that requires ankle mobility and you can't execute it properly because you don't have ankle mobility, your knee is just moving, 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 moving. And you're just, you're just asking for it to... This is what we would call a chronic, uh, a chronic injury versus a traumatic injury. Yeah. Traumatic injuries on the field. Chronic is like over time, you just keep chipping away at it till it's like, nope, it's done. Um, hence why rolling out of bed, I tore my meniscus the second time. Was it really rolling out of bed that was so hard on me? No, it was Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, squatting, pickup league soccer, over and over and over again on a partially torn meniscus, just over and over again doing shitty work on it, and then yeah. it just snapped. So... Ankle mobility, hip mobility are going to be your two go-tos for mobility. Um, From a stretching perspective, it's iffy. I don't think there's a ton to do. But, however, if you do have really tight calves, hamstrings, or quads and hip flexors, you could be exacerbating the issue of the lack of mobility, lack of movement. So what I would do is stretch your calves, stretch your hamstrings, stretch your quads and hip flexors. Um, Tissue work on those. Uh, The best protocol would be to do tissue work, foam rolling, cross ball, and then stretch them. So break up tissue, let your nervous system relax muscle, and then stretch it. So while it's relaxed, you can extend the range of motion um, in a dynamic way, and then do that before you work out. Um, And then for exercise selection, um, again, this is what I'm doing with Jake, and it's going to help him a ton. Uh, way more hamstring work than quad work, first and foremost. Um, hamstring work is going to support the knees. Uh, quad work is going to strengthen the knees. But if you don't have the strength and stability to do it, 
it's going to make it worse. You can't handle it. Yeah. So if you're doing the typical leg day, I can imagine you're squatting, then leg extension, then lunges, then leg press, because that's what most people do. And if you look at most machines in a big box gym, it's mostly quad focused. So you should be doing RDLs. You should be doing leg curl variations. You should be doing hip thrust variation. Um, that's really all you can do because there's only so many hamstring exercises that you can really do. But do more of those. Do more single leg work because if I'm doing, for example, an RDL with 200 pounds and that's how much I need to load up the hamstrings. I got 100 pounds per hamstring basically of load, 200 pounds on my spine. If I do a single leg RDL with 50 pound dumbbells, I can do a single leg RDL and that's still 100 pounds per leg, but it's 100 pounds on my spine. And it's not even on my spine because it's loaded way differently. It's not axial loading. Um, so... You're going to want to do more unilateral work, more hamstring work, ankle mobility, hip mobility, a little bit of stretching in those areas. And you do that for a consistent amount of time with controlled, slow tension without focusing so much on lifting heavier and heavier over time. You'll be golden. Totally. You know? And I would say, too, like if you're doing any cardio, stick to the bike. Yep. No walking. Running. I mean, you can walk, obviously, if you're trying to get your step count in. But I wouldn't like go on a treadmill to do cardio and walk incline. You know, I wouldn't go run for sure. Um, I get that blood flowing. Yeah, but the, the, the bike is amazing for that. If you have a sled, that is one of the best exercises to build the muscles around and work ankle mobility because you can drag it backwards and really focus on like heel to toe movement of your ankle and let your knee glide over your toes. Um, and that'll help a ton. Totally. So love it. All right, we got one more here from uh, Scott Brody555. It says, I've been staying in the four to six rep range, but want to know if dropping weight to do more reps will be better for muscle growth. Um, yes, it will at a certain point. So four to six rep range is a great rep range for compound lifts, even if your goal is muscle growth. But if you're doing four to six rep six rep range for everything, accessories, exercises, isolation, combat, like that's too low volume. Um, the, this is where I think that a lot of people get confused because, uh, you know, for example, there was a research study that showed it doesn't matter what rep range you do. As long as total volume is equated, you're going to build muscle. And what people saw in that and what the headlines of this study said, and what people shared was all rep ranges build muscle. Therefore, people go, well, I enjoy this rep range more, so I'm going to do this rep range. The problem is, is that every specific scenario requires a different rep range. For example, if somebody is like, I really enjoy the 10 to 15 rep range, but you get to a point where you're plateaued because you're weak, you need to lift heavy and you need to do sets of three to build strength neurologically and then come back to those higher rep ranges to lift heavier there. So there's a specific, you know, and for this person, if you're not acquiring enough volume, you got to do more reps yeah. to get volume. And that's the problem is like, but I thought... Every rep range builds muscle. Well, it does when volume's equated. So in the study, they go, I think it was like 10 sets of three or four sets of 10 or whatever the math is where it basically equals out. So three sets of 10, 10 sets of three essentially. Um, and they equated volume. And I don't think it was exactly that because they had to basically take the, the absolute volume had to match up, which means the, the rep sets and weight lifted had to equal blank. So if group A lifted 10,000 pounds, group B lifted 10,000 pounds kind of thing, total tonnage. Absolute volume has to be equated and muscle growth is exactly the same. The problem with that is the group of uh, doing sets of three had to do a lot of sets, took way longer because the rest periods had to be longer because the weight was heavier and it was more neurologically taxing. And I would probably argue that it was probably more stressful on their joints. Studies aren't long enough to show that because you'd have to be doing it for months on end. But if that's the case, 
well, yeah, you can both build muscle equally, but the group of three sets of 10 got the job done way faster with way less fatigue. Yeah. Therefore, that's still the best rep range. So this, I, a lot of people started saying like, there is no hypertrophy zone because back in the day they taught you that in PT school of like, you know, uh, one to five rep range of strength, eight to 12 is hypertrophy, 15 to 20 is um, endurance. And it's true, but then studies like this come out and it's like, well, you can build strength in any rep range, you can build muscle in any rep range. And that's true too. But what is the most practical? In the real world, if we have to equate volume to build most muscle, you have to pick the type of protocol that's going to allow you to accumulate the most volume. And usually that's going to be rep range from eight to 12, eight to 15 maybe, because you can accumulate more volume with less sets and less time and less neurological fatigue. And if you can do that, it means you can build more muscle easier. But plenty of research has shown if you want strength, you have to do low reps. So you won't build as much muscle. Low reps? Yeah, because you have to lift heavy to build strength. Plain and simple. Like, technically, I could lift a 20-pound a, a dumbbell and a 100-pound dumbbell. If volume's equated, I'll build the same amount of muscle. But I will not get stronger lifting that 20-pound dumbbell. The 100-pound, fuck yeah, I'll get stronger. But at a certain point, I need more volume to build muscle. So um, there's a caveat to this. But yeah, essentially, if you've been doing the four to six rep range and you're stuck and want to build more muscle, yeah, you need to lower the weight a little bit and add reps. Um, I like a, a undulating approach either um, throughout the week or throughout the session. So throughout the session would be my go-to for you, for most people where your compound lift, you stay in that three to six rep range. Because when you start going way higher than six, eight at most reps on a bench squat, especially deadlift, injury risk just goes up. Those are type of exercises that are meant for lower reps. Everything else stays in that like eight to 15 rep range. You do that per session, you're golden. Totally. You get the mix of both. Yeah. All right, um, cool. That was the last question. Dope. All right, guys. Uh, check out the sponsors of this podcast. As always, we mentioned a couple of them a couple times in the podcast and every podcast, giantlifting.com slash, I don't know what it is, but you can type in TCM10. Uh, I don't think we have a slash oh. Taylor Coach Method. That's why I was going to say. Uh, but giantlifting.com, they have a ton of stuff. Uh, actually, Sam Miller just hit me up. He just picked up a bunch of shit for his gym because he's building out one. Um, but we got everything giant, and their stuff is resilient as hell. Uh, my garage gym is, is filled with that as well. Um, we just auctioned off a sick garage gym squat rack, barbell, all that stuff at the, the Golf Memorial uh, charity event. And uh, that's one thing I will say is their garage like setup. But Giant is sick. So if you have a garage gym, you want a garage gym, they're the place to go. TCM10 at checkout saves you 10%. Uh, and then head over to firstform.com slash tailored coaching method for all your supplement needs. We appreciate you guys listening to the podcast and we will catch you next time.